it is never hard to get somebody out of the Pentagon to come to Charlottesville, believe me. <laughs> and uh, and if, if that wasn't enough, I mean, uh, just a professor and a man of such caliber is, that's Professor Moore. I had Professor Moore for national security law, and I like to say he, he wrote the book, literally, <laughs> because he did write the book on national security law, which I still have behind me on my desk on the shelf as I have the national security law by Professor Moore and then the, the readings, which have a lot of great documentation. So uh, it's always an honor to come back for you, sir, and, uh, and thank you very much. They are trying to find my slides, uh, but I can do it without it. Uh, it's, it's not a problem. I want to talk to you today mainly about what you all want to talk about. I'm going to talk a little bit about where the Joint Staff, where the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and really where the Department of Defense falls into the national security arena, a little bit about how national security policy is made, and then we might get into some, some, some of the different topics that are going on in the world. We'll talk about some legal issues and, and some of the analysis that I do and my folks do as we're analyzing whether or not we can use military force in a particular setting. But then I want to talk about what you all want to talk about. So I hope you'll ask questions. I understand you're pretty good at that. So uh, uh, please do as we come along. And feel free to interrupt at any time uh, as we get into this. Well, let's start with um, the most, most folks aren't necessarily very familiar with DOD and the Department of Defense. We love acronyms, by the way, so I will, I will try to stay away from it, but it's a habit. But most people aren't familiar with the Department of Defense, even people who work in the Department of Defense. I mean, frankly, when I was in the same place as, as some of these uh, gentlemen sitting around in the uniforms, or, you know, I didn't fully understand how this giant enterprise worked and who was who in the zoo necessarily. I didn't really understand what the Joint Staff did or what the Chairman did or the Joint Chiefs and didn't, didn't have a good feel for that. But if you think about the Department of Defense, there are really two different sides to the Department uh, it, to oversimplify, if you will, of the chains of command. Uh, the first chain of command, I think, runs from the President to the Secretary of Defense, through the service secretaries, to the various services. Department of the Army, Department of the Navy, Department of the Air Force, and of course in the Department of Navy you have the Navy and the Marines. And I have this wonderful chart here that shows you this, uh, that, that we'll, as soon as we find it, we'll get this great chart. And that, that is what I like to call the train, equip, provide side of the Department of Defense. So that's the side responsible for uh, of putting armies together, putting navies together, making sure ships are maintained and the airplanes fly and we get the right fuel and we train the people to fly those jets and we have the right weaponry. That's the train, equip, provide side of the Department of Defense. It used to be before uh, an act called the Goldwater-Nichols Act of 1986, before we had something called Joint Forces, it used to be that that was the only side, really, of the Department of Defense. Back in the World War I era, World War II even to a degree, if it was something that happened on land, it was the Army. The Army fought it. The Army took care of it. If it was something that happened at sea, it was the Navy. The Navy took care of it. The Navy fought it. They both reported up to the President, and that was it. Uh, at some point, somebody decided, you know, it might be a good idea if we coordinate. It might be a good idea if we talk. You know, we're both kind of on the same team. And it would be a nice thing if we got together. So around the time of the Spanish-American War-ish, before World War I, they began to have what was called a joint board. And a joint board was just simply a coordinating body that allowed the Army and the Navy, and the, to, we didn't have the Air Force yet, uh, the Army and the Navy to talk. 
and to coordinate, but it didn't have any authority. It didn't do any necessarily any mutual planning. It was more just a synchronization type thing. Fast forward through the two world wars to the end of the World War II when we had the National Security Act of 1947, which probably has been the major seismic shift in national security law and in how the national security structure is in our history. I mean, frankly, that's the biggie. And that created, for example, the Central Intelligence Agency. That created the Department of Defense versus Department of War. It created, it formalized the Joint Chiefs, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff as, as a planning and coordination body, and, and did so many other things that if you've studied the 1947 National Security Act, you're aware of. So that became a more formal structure. Back then, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who were the head of the Army, the head of the Navy, now the head of the Air Force, and then also they would elect a chairman. They would pick somebody to take turns being the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. They were actually a decision-making body. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff would make decisions about use of military force. They were in the chain of command. And, and that was the, the state until about the mid-50s when a, one law changed and, and took the Joint Chiefs out of the chain of command. And then later in 1986, the Goldwater-Nichols Act formalized the other half of the department that I like to talk about, which is the operational half of the department. The Department of Defense chain of command that runs from the president to the secretary of defense to the combatant commanders. And that's, that's the state we're in now. So we have Central Command, U.S. Central Command based out of Tampa, Florida. We have U.S. European Command that sits in Stuttgart. We have Pacific Command. We have Europe, uh, Africa Command. We have Southern Command. We have Northern Command. And these commands are responsible for all military forces within a particular geographic region. We also have specialized commands, such as the special operations, they're called functional combatant commands. Special operations command being the most famous, but also uh, strategic command, which has our nuclear mission, as well as our cyber mission. We have um, transportation command, which does all of our global military transportation. And so those are the the combatant commands, and that is really the operational side of things. That's where, that's where operations happen. So for example, if the 82nd Airborne Division from Fort Bragg, North Carolina is in Fort Bragg and they're training and they're out at, they're out at a range and they're firing their weapons and they're practicing on an exercise, they work for the United States Army. However, when, you get, when the 82nd Airborne Division goes to Afghanistan to fight and to do the mission there, they now work for Central Command. They're now, they've moved from the Army side to the, the, the combatant commander side, the, what I call the operational chain of command. And that's important to us because it's important to us as military, but it's important to me as a lawyer because that's where authority flows. All authority flows through the chain of command, from the president down. So if there's a decision that we're going to use force in a particular area, that comes from the president down through the Secretary of Defense, the combatant commander, to the forces under his or her control. And so chain of command and authority is one of the key things that we look at as, as, the, uh, as a legal advisor in that chain. Now, sitting right there outside the chain of command are still the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They now serve as an advisory body. They're not in the chain of command anymore. And my boss, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is by law the principal military advisor to the President, the Secretary of Defense, and the National Security Council. He also has a statutory role to advise the Congress. 
and uh, to advise uh, Congress when, he, when asked to do so. And so that creates one of the issues you'll sometimes see in the news where my boss or previous chairman have been called by Congress to say, well, the president's doing A, what was your advice? And the chairman says, my advice was B. And sometimes that upsets people because they think, wait a minute, the president said A, why is the chairman saying B? Well, the chairman's saying B because by law he's required to give his best military advice. And he's very careful not to say, oh, the president's wrong, he should have taken my advice, because it is civilian control of the military. Hey, that's a great slide. Thank you very much. Cool. So this would have been the first slide you saw. Let me see if I can figure this out. Okay, so here's, just back up just a second. This is the slide that the Department of Defense shows at briefings. So they'll show you this slide, and, and, and the reason I like to, uh, to talk about this one is, you'll notice over here the combatant commands are all in this little tiny box over here. And so I don't like this slide, because I think it, it throws it off balance, and it doesn't show what I was just talking to you about. This is the slide I use. And I actually got a chance, uh, for example, when Secretary Hagel, uh, or Senator Hagel was nominated to be the Secretary of Defense, we got a chance to brief him on the chain of command, and this is the slide we used. Because this one shows on the left side that train, equip, provide side that I talked about with the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and the Marines. And then the operational side, which are the combatant commanders. And that's how, that's how I like to think of the department and, and, and the authorities that flow from that. Now, here's the duties of the chairman. We were just talking about this. These, and you see he has an advisory role. He has a planning role. He has a strategic role. But he's not in the chain of command. And so, and he understands that. I mean, absolutely. And that's, that's often a topic of discussion. Sometimes folks will want the chairman to exercise something that looks like command or directive authority. And we have to advise that he can't do that. And these are the functions that he can't do. Now, let's talk a little bit, now that we talked about the department, let's talk about how, how policies are made at the interagency. I, and I apologize if you've already gotten this from another speaker. But uh, this, is some, this is another part of, of the whole interagency thing that I didn't understand at all until, uh, frankly, I got into this job and a little bit before when I studied it at the National. Yes, ma'am? Sorry, just a um, question. What's the difference between the Navy and the, the Marines? Oh, that's a great question, actually. Besides intelligence, their IQs. Um, <laughs> notice I didn't pick a side on that one. <laughs> they me. So we have... Navy and Marines. Not good. No. It had to be one. Uh, but you're on the smart team, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> So, by law, we're divided into departments and services. Departments are the civilian-led overarching organization that runs that particular branch of the military. So you have the Department of the Army, the Department of the Navy, and Department of the Air Force. And then underneath those, you have the military services. And those are the uniform services uh, uh, that they're actually people that are in uniform. I mean, they hire civilians for different types of jobs. It's not like it's all pure folks in uniform, but, but we, we differentiate by services. So you'll notice underneath the Department of the Navy, you have both the Navy service and the Marine Corps service. Our Navy, you're, you're from Canada, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, our Navy are all the folks that, 
that you know are on the ships and, and run the kind of the sea service, the maritime service. And our Marines are more like the ground forces uh, uh, that that are on. They use shipboard things. They their their primary mission is near the coastline. I mean, that's been their traditional historic mission. They're on board ships, and and they're they're very good at crossing across from the sea onto the land via the beach. And so they're great. Their traditional mission has always been kind of that from the sea to the land. Now, in today's world, they're in the middle of Afghanistan where there's not a body of water in sight. And, and they've done that with great, great success and become a second ground force, if you will, akin to a smaller, different type of, like the Army. And so there's been, and, and the, the Marines have their own air support. They have their own mini air force and so forth and helicopters and everything else. So there have been, for example, congressmen who have introduced bills to create a Department of the Marine Corps or introduced bills to create, to rename it the Department of the Navy and the Marine Corps. And, and those never tend to pick up too much speed, but, but just as a matter of recognizing that there really are two services that are very interconnected underneath the Department of the Navy. Does, does that answer your question? Great. Where does the National Guard fall? That's a great question as well. So. Uh, the National Guard is one of our two, um, we have three components typically with the military, uh, with the Army and with the Air Force. They have your, you have your active duty, your active component forces, those are the full-time military folks. Then you have your reserve folks, those are the folks that, that are, uh, they have civilian jobs and then they come on part-time in the Army Reserve or the Air Force Reserve, and there's also a Navy Reserve. Um, and a Marine Corps reserve, actually. Every, every service has a reserve. And, then, and then, the, um, then we have the National Guard, which are the traditional state militias that, that really have been in existence since before the Revolutionary War. Every state, every local town had a little militia that was responsible for the defense of that village, town, state, etc. And so that has changed into the National Guard. Now, we interestingly enough, we have the Army National Guard and we have the Air Force National Guard. They both fall under the Chief of the National Guard, uh, but they're still part of, the, the Army National Guard is part of the Army, and so it falls under the Department of the Army. The, the Air Force National Guard falls under the Department of the Air Force, but they also have this, this headquarters of the National Guard Bureau and the four-star uh, Chief of the National Guard. So it's, it's an unusual relationship because they, they fall underneath their service, but they also have the, the National Guard Bureau. And that, that can create some challenges on, in authorities and so forth. Now, in, there's no chain of command, per se, through the National Guard Bureau. Uh, the other interesting thing about the National Guard is uh, the fact that when they're in state status, what we call Title 32 status. So you think about the different sections of the U.S. Code. Title 10 is the traditional section of the U.S. Code that pertains to the military. Title 32 pertains to the National Guard. And so when a National Guard unit is fighting for their state or working for their state, fighting's the wrong word, fighting hurricanes, fighting natural disasters, policing the streets during riots and so forth, when they're doing that for the governor, they work for the governor, they're in state status. We often say they're in <coughs> Title 32 status. Uh, when they're working, when they're federalized and they're brought to either do a mission over in Afghanistan or do a some kind of insurrection act uh, call up by the president here in the United States or a national disaster where they're federalized, then we say they're in Title 10 status. And so that creates a host of issues as well. 
and, and, and you know some some pretty interesting legal issues uh, in that. The chief of the National Guard Bureau was a three-star general not too long ago and was upgraded to a four. Uh, not him personally, but the position. And then that position, right about the time I came onto the Joint Staff, so about 2009 or so, or I'm sorry, 2011-ish, 2010-ish, by the, an NDAA was made a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So there is a statutory definition of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's the Chairman, the Vice Chairman, Chief of Staff of the Army, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, Chief of Naval Operations, Commandant of the Marine Corps, and the Chief of the National Guard Bureau. And that's it. That's the membership of the Joint Chiefs. They are an advisory body. And um, they used to be they would do a consensus opinion to give their best military advice. So if the president said, what did the Joint Chiefs think, then the Joint Chiefs would say, this is what we think. Now, by law, by Goldwater-Nichols, the 1986 act I spoke about, it created this whole new joint structure that, that is really on the right side of this chart. It, it made the chairman of the Joint Chiefs the principal military advisor to the president, the, uh, the secretary of defense. That way you have one person giving that that principal military advice. Doesn't mean the other Joint Chiefs can't weigh in. They often do. And a lot of times the chairman will get consensus anyway and, and take it to the president, uh, like with the current retirement proposals that are under, uh, or, or other you know things like that. They'll, they'll get a consensus view from the Joint Chiefs. Great question. And probably 10 minutes more of an answer than you wanted, but. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about if the US interagency process and how this works. Again, if you've already had this from another speaker, I apologize. Uh, but but this, is, this is one, I think, one of the more interesting things. When you've got a proposal to do something in the interest of national security, it can sometimes come from the bottom up or sometimes the top down. And what I mean by that is it could be that one of the combatant commands or an embassy, an ambassador, or the Treasury Department or someone else suggests we ought to do a particular action that would benefit our national security. That could be we ought to fight ISIS in Iraq, or we ought to sanction this particular government because they're doing bad things, or whatever the action may be. So that might be a bottom-up, and that happens. Happens quite a bit, actually, in the military, as, as combatant commands propose certain actions or op military operations or use of force. It might be top-down. It might be that the president says to his staff, I need, to, I need to know what we what should we do about this, this particular national security problem or interest. And, and so that would be top down. Either way, it enters into this system that I, you see on this chart here. It really starts with what we call an interagency policy committee, an IPC. And an IPC is folks kind of at the one-star senior executive GS-15 level or so, who are the experts from various government agencies that come together to draft and create a recommendation on policy. So what should we do about ISIS in Iraq? An IPC might come together and say, here's the different things we ought to do across the various instruments of national power. Here's what we think is the best course of action, or here are multiple courses of action that we think would be advisable. And so you have the IPC that starts the process of drafting national policy or national strategy. Uh, for the for really for the president to make a decision. From there, it goes to a deputies committee, and that and that is literally a committee of deputies. It is the deputy secretary of defense or his representative. Usually, the undersecretary of of defense for policy goes to those. Uh, it is the deputy secretary of state. It is the deputy De director of the CIA, and so forth. And so you 
excuse me, you have the deputies of the various agencies that play in national security policy that come together to look at what the IPC did to make recommendations to further talk about what's the best course of action, how should we approach this particular national security process. From there, if they can come to a consensus, great, and those are led, by the way, by Ms. Avril Haynes, who is the Deputy National Security Advisor, or if it's counterterrorism, by Ms. Lisa Monaco, who is the current counterterrorism advisor to the President. You've probably heard those names. In fact, Mr. Carlin, who was here before, Lisa Monaco was in his job before she became the counterterrorism advisor for the National Security Council staff. So the, the Deputies Committee would meet and talk through this. From there, it might go to a principals committee. Often, the deputies will have their principals' authority to, to say, here's what our recommendation is for the department. But when the principals get together, it's the Secretary of Defense. It's the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, by the way, sits on the Deputies Committee's uh, meetings. And so it'll be the CIA Director, the Head of the Department. It'll be the Attorney General for the Department of Justice and so forth. And they'll get together, and they'll, they'll decide what to recommend to the President. Now, if you take a principles committee, and by the way, this is not the legal definition of the National Security Council, but this is in function what happens. If you have a principles committee and the president and the vice president attend, it's now a National Security Council meeting. And typically, if the president is at one of those meetings, a decision will be made. Principles committees, there's nobody there to make a decision because none of them are the final decision maker. And they'll, so they'll discuss what ought to happen, they'll make recommendations, and try to come to a consensus on what's best for America and its national interest, but there's nobody there that can make a decision. If the president's there, they can make a he can make a decision. And you know, my understanding is, if the president's there, a decision will be made, uh, because that's why you bring the president. So, question, and then we'll get to National Security Council. I'll show you the membership here in just a second. Questions on this? None at all. So here's uh, the National Security Council membership, just like. The the Joint Chiefs and, and a lot of the things I showed you about DOD, the membership is set by statute. Now, interest, also by the 1947 National Security Act. Interestingly enough, at least I think it's interesting, there aren't that many actual people who are on the National Security Council by law. It's only these five people here. The President, the Vice President, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and the Head of the Department of Energy. Kind of interesting. Uh, he's, I, I assume he's on there because in 1947, the beginning of the Cold War, post uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, I'm, I'm assuming the nuclear weapon thing, the, the, the Department of Energy was there. In a lot of cases, and a lot of the issues we face today, um, issues like ISIL, issues like um, you know, South China Sea, it's cyber, you know, the, the, the head of the Department of Energy won't, won't come to these meetings because there's there's no play there, you know. But statutorily, that's your national security. You also have statutory advisors, the chairman, director of national intelligence. It's not like it's a voting, not voting thing, because again, only one person at that table can make a decision, and that's the president. He's the only one with the authority to, he's got the constitutional power. So, uh, but you have those. Then you have non-statutory members, and, and these folks are almost always there. So you have Samantha Power from the USUN, you have Susan Rice, the National Security Advisor, who, who runs Principals Committee meetings. You have uh, Mr. McDonough, the Chief of Staff, will often be there, DOJ, et cetera, uh, DHS. And then a lot of these folks sometimes will be there and sometimes not. Um, Brian Egan is uh, the counsel. He's the 
head lawyer for the National Security Council staff. Uh, and so he's somebody that we work with pretty closely in the lawyer group. And I'll talk about the lawyer group here in a second. So that's kind of the structure of who's talking about decisions on the National Security Council and the Homeland Security Council, which, by the way, President Obama merged back together if, if you study this stuff at all. Uh, every president comes in, by the way, and typically within the first first few days, if not, and, and it's often something done by their transition teams in preparation, but they'll come in and their first presidential directive they issue typically is how this structure works. And so they might rename, they might not use deputies committees and principals <coughs> committees, they, although those names tend to stick from administration to administration. Uh, IPC is one that tends to change, they'll, they'll name it something else. But they'll talk about how the process works for national security policy in the first presidential directive typically issued. Yes, sir. Um, so in your opinion, is there anyone not on here that, that maybe should be? <clears throat> so I thought, like, if DOE is just sort of um, an antique, if you will, no offense to the Department of Energy, because um, it's not a is there somebody that's, that's not here that, that might be helpful? Or? They're, they're pretty good about uh, inviting folks that, I mean, they're, they're not bound. In fact, it, rarely do you ever see it run the way the law says. I mean, they'll invite who they think ought to invite. And so, for example, the FBI is a subordinate element of the Department of Justice. But if there's a heavy law enforcement element to it, they'll often invite the Department of Justice separately. Uh, we've seen, and I know when uh, we've had meetings on counterterrorism, and I go, I, I get to go to some deputies committees, which are, are really cool, and I've been to one principal's committee, uh, which, which was very, very cool uh, to go see that. I've never been to a National Security Council meeting because you don't get in there unless you're one of these principals. But, um, you know, they'll, they'll bring in the FBI. Sometimes they'll bring in, like, we'll have the National Security Agency come to some, and they're a subordinate element of the Department of Defense. And so it's kind of interesting sometimes to see that occur when you have a subordinate element who gets an equal voice at the table around the discussion. But they, I mean, these are, they're, they're principles. They, they, know how to, they know how to work this, and they know who they work for, so it typically works pretty well. You know, the, one of the interesting dynamics that we watch is you have the chairman who goes to principals committees right next to the Secretary of Defense. So it's almost like a second vote, uh, even though nobody votes, but a second opinion at the table. And sometimes those opinions may not line perfectly. Ideally, they do. Ideally, the, pres the chairman and the SecDef have worked that out before they go. But at the end of the day, the chairman is bound, I mean, by law and, and really by duty to give his best military advice, even if that's not necessarily what folks are. But he, and, and he's very quick to say, but at the end of the day, the decision belongs to the civilian leadership of the department and the civilian leadership of the government, which is the president. Um, so we get two, two seats at deputies committees as well, because we have the vice chairman and the deputy secretary there as well. Yeah, Joe. Hey, so can you talk about uh, the lawyers that meet uh, regularly about yeah. the agencies? The lawyers group, which is not, it's, it's now written down in at least two documents. But when I got here, it wasn't. It was kind of this shadowy bunch of folks, including me, who, uh, and uh, it's called the lawyer, Interagency Lawyers Group or the Lawyers Group, and and it's not a formal body per se, but it, it is essentially the, the head counsel for each of the folks that are sitting at that table in deputies committees and principals committees. So the lawyers group will be uh, the head of the head of the assistant attorney general for OLC, Office of Legal Counsel at DOJ. Uh, you'll have the CIA lawyer, the ODNI lawyer, the Justice, or I'm sorry, the uh, State Department legal advisor, so Harold Coe till he left, and now Mary uh, McLeod, the acting. You'll have that DOD general counsel there, Mr. Preston, 
I'm there or or our reps. I mean, we sometimes we you know and sometimes we bring folks and we'll have fun. I'm trying to think who I left out. Um, sometimes we'll bring treasury in if there's an economic component. Sometimes we'll ask a particular intel agency, NSA, or one of the others to come send their lawyers if, it, if there's an element of that in it. And the lawyers group is what we're asked to do is when, during this process, whether it's the IPC, the deputies committee, or the principals committee, we'll get legal questions kicked out. Can we lawfully drop bombs on ISIL in Syria? You know, we got that question, no surprise. And so we try to come to a consensus basis on the domestic and international law and see if we can agree as a lawyers group. You know, which, and, and I've been really surprised, pleasantly surprised uh, at the four years I've been here, we typically can come to a consensus. And, and the other thing that's been gratifying for me is, you know, in that lawyers group, I'm the only non-political appointee. I mean, the rest of them are politically appointed and, and Senate confirmed members of their agencies. And yet I don't see politics playing in it at all. I mean, I, I, and I, that's been very gratifying for me. You know, we're apolitical as members of the military, but it was good for me to see that they really do stick to what does the law say, you know, and not, and not interweave it with politics. Uh, occasionally a little policy creeps in and, 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 you know, some of us are quick to slap that back out uh, because it really needs to be the law and leave the policy to the policy. A great question. Sir, just a follow-up to what you just said. Um, the legal advice does come to the Commander-in-Chief from both uniformed military um, lawyers and yourself and you know, political appointees who are uh, legal advisors. Um, as far as the mechanism for the Commander-in-Chief receiving that legal advice, sometimes it's not always the same. So is the structure to get that advice, is it, do you have, uh, how, I guess, how is that done? Yeah, is there yeah, a better no. way to do it? I mean, because you want the best advice to get to the President and I guess it depends on how receptive. But. No, 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 I got you. So the, the way it works by law, the attorney general is the principal legal advisor to the president and to the executive branch by law. So he, he's the chief legal officer for the executive branch. And so his word at the end of the day is the final word for the attorney general. He does that through the mechanism of the Office of Legal Counsel. You've heard of OLC opinions. They're very famous, and we all talk about them. And so that office is the one that, that writes the opinions on the various questions that come from the executive branch on not just issues of national security, but all sorts of issues across the executive branch. I mean, short, it's, it's essentially an advisory opinion from the one shop designated by the attorney general to make, have the final word absent a court case where the courts would step in and say, this is what, and, and you know, one, one agency doesn't sue another one for a legal opinion on, on issues like this. So that doesn't happen. But sometimes you'll have outside parties sue, and that's how you develop that law. So the, uh, what we do is, is we, it's not like I advise the president because I don't. I advise the chairman. And I'm the, I'm the highest ranking legal officer in the military chain on that operational side. So what I advise the chairman. Now, I work very closely with the DOD general counsel to make sure that we're kind of aligned. I mean, he, at the end of the day, he's the final say for the Department of Defense. I mean, he he's advises the SECDEF. So his his legal opinion is the one that leaves the department. So, and, and, and that's just, that's the right thing to do. I mean, that doesn't bother me at all, but it just makes sense for me to have that good relationship and to work carefully with him. And, and not, it's not just me working with Mr. Preston. It's, it's all of my action officers working with all of his action officers every day. We're talking. We're making sure that we're aligned. Rarely, it'll it'll come to. It, 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 I've never had a situation that I can recall where they said it was 
X and we said it was Y. I mean, I've never had a situation where we got down to where we were completely opposed and, and if we had been DOD, OGC wins. But I've had, I have had it where maybe they think it's A and I think it's A plus B, or a nuance, A but not this part. And, and what, what they've been really good, Mr. Preston and Jay Johnson before him, very good about when they communicate that across to the National Security Council legal staff, they'll say, you know, OGC thinks it's A. By the way, Joint Staff disagrees with this part. They think it ought to be this. But we work, we try very hard to work that out and, and not have to leave the building while maintaining, you know, making sure we're, we're representing our clients and doing due diligence. So it's a good balance. When the principals and deputies committees get together and they have a legal question, then we try to come to a consensus in the lawyers group. And if we can do that and we can write a paper and everybody's in agreement, then that paper will typically go over. That'll go to to the principals committee, the deputies committee, and, and I assume it's, it's communicated in some fashion, typically by Brian Egan, the uh, National Security Council staff lawyer. That's communicated to Ambassador Rice, to Mr. McDonough, and to the president. This is what the lawyers group thinks the law is pertaining to this issue, and, and that's that. Now, if we can't come to a consensus, then you have to go back to the OLC and let them write and say, this is what it is. And sometimes we go to OLC anyway just to formally say, this is what the, the law is in this particular area. Does that, does that kind of answer the question? Rich, one thing on that is the Council of the NSC always chairing those uh, legal group um, meetings? Yeah, uh, almost always. I've had, we've had one discussion where the White House Council uh, ran, uh, it, it was just a discussion on, really on a legislative strategy pertaining to a particular uh, proposal, but, but that's the first time I've seen him do that, and, most, and all the other times it's been Mr. Egan or one of his folks. Yeah, yeah. good question. Hanson, yeah. yeah. General, when the lawyers groups, when they meet together to develop these papers, if this is even an answerable question, um, are there frequently cited sources of law that you have to deal with or that come up you know, more frequently than others? What I'm saying is, um, are there certain sources of law, whether it's statutory or, or, or customs, that um, the lawyers frequently have to turn to in order to regulate? Yeah, no, I, I think there are. And let me give you a few examples. So we, you know, in the course of doing counterterrorism operations um, in Yemen, Somalia, and other places, then we obviously go to the authorization for use of military force quite a bit. So that's a domestic law we go to quite a bit. Uh, the, the president's Article II authority as the commander in chief, we look to a lot. Um, international law, we look to typically the international law pertaining to the use of force, and I'm going to show you that here in a second. Uh, and then um, self defense law, we tend to look at a lot, both domestic and international. So there tends, with the, with the issues that repeat, like targeting um, terrorists, you know, and as, as part of our operations, those laws tend to be the same, and, we, and it, it's just the facts that are different. Is someone a lawful military target? Do they fall within the authorization for use of military force? Can we use force in this place to go after that person? Those bodies of law are, tend to be the same, it's just the, the facts change, and so the answer may change. General, you're painting a picture of a very smoothly functioning government <laughs> organization. Well, of course it is. Uh, yes. yes, well that's what I was going to ask you, uh, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here. Not at all. These are people with strong personalities, a wealth of experience perhaps. We have strong opinions, yeah. and uh, does it work as well as you're suggesting? It, uh, 
Well, I mean, that's part of what makes it work, frankly, is that you do have some opinionated people. And so we've we spent, um, you know, we've had some both on the policy side and the legal side. I mean, you'll, you'll have multiple deputies committee meetings on the same topic because they can't come to a consensus, because they can't agree. And so they'll, you know, they'll, they'll meet over and over and over again and because there are strongly held views about what people think is the right thing to do for, you know, for our country and our national interest. And the same with the lawyers. Sometimes there are just real disagreements about what the law says, and there are hard problems. So, for example, the, the, you know, as, as we looked at the law involving targeting ISIL in Syria and Iraq and, and using the 2001 AUMF and 2002 AUMF, those were difficult questions. And that wasn't a that wasn't a half hour lawyers group meeting. That was multiple, you know, discussions and, and talks. But the, you know, the thing I, I I can't speak for the principals deputy committee. The ones I've been at have been very collegial, spirited certainly, but very collegial. But uh, the lawyers group has always been very collegial. You know, a lot of respect for each other, and and, and it's it's been very gratifying to see. I mean, because everybody cares very much about you know, doing the right thing and, and doing what's best for the country. And so that sometimes takes time. Well, one reason I asked, I spent a lot of time in Iraq, and I was working Me too. <laughs> where the general counsel was from this law school and half the office was. Um, but we, uh, I have all too many unfond memories of clashes with the State Department, and I ended up with the State Department, by the way. But, and I have to say, egotism played a significant role. Now, this was not the kind of stratospheric yeah. level you're talking about, but we weren't all reading the same page. It was more important than who too many times. Well, and we, we're definitely not, you know, it's not a group hug and kumbaya every time either. I mean, yeah. there's no doubt that there, sometimes there are just disagreements and we, we do not get to consensus. Um, and that happens. I mean, that's, and you would expect that with a group of folks from with, across this diverse uh, a group of agencies and, and so forth and just disagree. And the other, the other thing that makes this hard, frankly, and for those of you who practiced international law, it's not like you can go to a big book of international law and say, this. oh, it's like a statute, you know? Uh, it's not that way. It, you know, you have to look at opinion of jurists and state practice and, and a lot of commentators and what they think international law says, and, and, and it can be tough sometimes to, to determine. You, <laughs> you said that, not me. Rich, can I, can I pursue this for a moment? Absolutely, yes, sir. Uh, um, I apologize on this, a little bit of a hobby horse. <laughs> but... Um, Goldwater Nichols was wonderful in basically achieving purple of the integration of the different services and a warfighting capability. And yet when we look at Iraq and look back at Iraq and ask the question, to what extent were we able to achieve the actual interagency integration effectively, I think the answer is it didn't get achieved very effectively for whatever the reason. Um, I'm inclined to, to call that the red, white, and blue reform that puts all of the United States government together, that gets the appropriate enormous expertise that's scattered around that group, some in state, some in DOD, some all the rest uh, around the United States government. How effective are we really? Is this an area as part of the reforms that we really need to get much better in, in integrating effectively the extraordinary level of expertise that's in all the different agencies as we approach a single warfighting setting. Yeah, no, like that's a great question. The uh, I tell you where we where we've done very well, and I'll, and and then I'll leave it to you all to figure out where perhaps we haven't. I, since 9/11, the 
in the special operations community, particularly revolving around the, the uh, counterterrorism task force forward in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, you know the, some of the things that General McChrystal achieved with with that crew. I mean, you you saw you had li liaison officers from from all the various federal agencies, not just the intelligence community, but FBI and everybody else, work Treasury, working together. Uh, I saw that at ISAF headquarters in Afghanistan when I was there, and and, and so in the counterterrorism field, because we had to almost, because we were, you know, it wasn't the law per se, it was, it was really the practice that, that required us to work together. And folks started to learn that, hey, you know, I don't, I don't have a tool that I can go after. I can't go after that Taliban drug lab because I can't show a nexus to a military target. But the DEA guys can absolutely, they have all the authorities they need to go do this. You know, and so as we've learned the hard way since 2001, it's really worked well. I would say in counterterrorism, and to a less lesser degree, but still quite a bit in coin counterinsurgency. And so if we could take that and, and export it in all the various areas where we have to have military expertise, or really all the instruments of national power expertise, we can get a lot better. There have been proposals, as you know better than I do, proposals to have a Goldwater Nichols for the interagency. You know, require an FBI agent to get to a certain level, he or she would have to go work for two years at DEA or at the CIA or somewhere else and come back, just like we do. You know, we have to, <laughs> we have to, you know, in the joint world, for those of you who don't know, uh, for line officers, JAGs have an exception, which if I were king, I would take away. But for line officers to make flag, to make one star or above, they have to serve in a joint assignment for a certain number of years and have a certain amount of joint education, and and that's required. So you don't get you don't get to be a general officer or an admiral without going to a joint assignment, and, and a joint assignment is carefully defined. It means you're on the staff at Central Command, or you're you're at ISAF U.S. Forces Afghanistan headquarters for a year. In Af you know you're working with a joint staff somewhere, and you've gone to a joint war college and, and gotten your joint education. Um, and, and there have been proposals to do that with the interagency. Now that's, it's been hard enough to do with the military the size we are. It, it would be really hard to do that to a degree uh, across all the interagencies. But you could do something like that. And, it, and, and frankly, it's a, it's, a, it's a proposal that tends to pop every couple of years. But I think in practice, we've really gotten pretty good at working together in certain arenas. Uh, and, and I tell you, folks can bring some amazing stuff to the to the fight. We've got a Coast Guard officer right now in our in my office, and, and and he's got such a background knowledge of things, law enforcement, homeland security, some different stuff that we don't have, and he just brings an enormous wealth to the table. That and I wish I could keep him. I can't. I, I only got it for a year, and I'd love to have a Coast Guard officer. Is there a Coast Guard? I need a Coast Guard officer. By the way, thank you very much. <laughs> go, go back and talk to the commandant. Uh, no, I actually have. They, they, they make me pay. I can't, I don't um, but yeah, but that interagency, you, you get so much when you synchronize and, and synergize all that stuff together. It just really makes us more effective. So I'm, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Questions? Okay, cool. I'm not doing all All right, so this is what I use and uh, to talk about how do I get from national interest to the use of military force. What, what is the mindset I use on the legal side? Now, this is not policy decisions. This is legal opinions on what kind of what law do I need to look at to get from an idea about a national interest 
something that's in our national interest to actually having a use of military force. And it's interesting, this slide, if you had seen this slide two years ago, I used to, it used to say for national interest to boots on the ground. And, but I changed that because, you know, we have the debate over boots on the ground in Iraq and Syria. And, and so the, it was confusing. So now I changed it to somewhat less fun title of use of military force. So when I, when I do this analysis, when my folks do this analysis, when CENTCOM does this analysis, this is kind of what we do. We first look at, do we have an international legal basis to use force? And that's where I start. Um, there's really three bases for the use of military force in international law. One is I have a UN Security Council resolution, and that's the first one. So I have a UN Security Council resolution that typically they'll say, all means necessary. They'll have a phrase like that that indicates I can use military force. And we're constantly bumping into this with the clients because there are, there are literally hundreds of UN Security Council resolutions dealing with national security issues, but they don't have an enforcement mechanism. They don't contain an authorization to use military force. They don't have that all means necessary. So for example, there may be UN Security Council resolutions with sanctions or that say that a certain country can't export arms to another country, but there's no military enforcement mechanism contained within the UN Security Council resolution. And we look, I mean, uh, and our clients might just go back and look again, and there's not. And, but, but it has to be a UN Security Council resolution that gives you that authority. Uh, the classic example was Libya recently, when we had a, uh, the authorization to use military force to, uh, to protect the civilian population. That, that could very well be the last one we'll get for a long time. If you studied that, if you followed that at all, you'll know that China in particular, and Russia to a degree as well, was very upset with NATO and the United States thinking that we took a UN Security Council resolution that allowed protection of civilians and used it to change a regime. And so their thought is that you know they were kind of a bait and switch on the UN Security Council resolution. So it's probably, you know, I'm not a predictor of UN politics, but I, I think we've seen since then with Syria, for example, pretty likely that China or Russia or both would tend to veto an all-means-necessary UN Security Council resolution because of the fear that it would be taken by the West and used for other purposes. So that, that's, just, that's just kind of the environment we're in. So that's one way we would get international law. The second one is uh, consent, which one we don't think about often, but certainly a nation can consent to another nation using military force on their, within their territory. And you see that, for example, in Afghanistan. The government of Afghanistan consents to our presence there use uh, to use military force. So that's a common one. And then the third one is self-defense, and that's one we, we fall on quite a bit. For example, in our fight against uh, al-Qaeda, uh, we use a self-defense basis, and, and that's both under international, customary international law uh, that predates the UN Charter, as well as the terms of the UN Charter uh, as well. So those are the three. Yes, ma'am. So we've had some sort of discussion back and forth um, between scholars and between whether um, humanitarian and intervention. Oh, I love you. That's going to break. Thanks for teeing that up. So that's that maybe is number four, maybe not. I would tell you it's not. The U.S. official position, it's not. So for those of you who don't follow this, uh, there is a concept of a norm. Most people call it a norm called responsibility to protect, R2P, or humanitarian intervention. You'll hear it called both. Uh, some people are, some purists will tell you that the the norm is responsibility to protect and the humanitarian intervention is what you do under the authority of it. But it's a norm that started in Canada uh, back in 2000-ish. Uh, 
uh, it actually, the first example predates that. It was in 1998, the Kosovo airstrikes. NATO didn't have a UN Security Council resolution, didn't have uh, any other self-defense base, didn't have a basis to use force to, to, uh, to do the airstrikes, and so fell back on the humanitarian crisis on the ground and the large-scale uh, genocide and said, we're going to do it anyway. And so the responsibility to protect is, um, is this concept that you... You may not be lawful, it may not be lawful to use force, but it's justified. That's typically how you'll hear it described. Um, three states right now recognize it as a legal basis for use of force. The UK, uh, Denmark, and Belgium. Uh, and, and so it, it remains to be seen whether other countries will adopt it. it it's, there have been a lot of calls to use it uh, in Syria, for example, to protect the civilian population. And so what it is, this norm is the idea that you would override a country's sovereignty even without a self-defense basis, even without consent, even without a UN Security Council resolution, and you would act to stop a genocide and protect the civilians that that country is unwilling and unable to do. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the concept. I, the way I explain it to clients, um, it's a norm, not a legal basis. Yeah, the way I explain it to clients is you've got a, you've got a friend who's been badly injured and they're in the back seat of your car and you're, and you're running red lights and speeding, driving them to the hospital. Are you breaking the law? Absolutely. Are you justified in doing so? Absolutely. And that's kind of what responsibility to protect is. There is, a lot, there, is a, there is a growing push to recognize it as international legal basis number four. And so it'll, it remains to be seen whether that'll happen or not. The problem with it is if you're looking at the policy arguments about responsibility to protect, uh, as a legal basis, is if you look at if you look at some of the arguments for using force in Syria two years ago, when the, at the height of some of the, the 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 really bad civilian casualties there, and you look at some of the arguments and justifications Russia was using with respect to the Crimea, they were very similar. And so the the risk, the danger with responsibility to protect, is that it, it would create it would create an opportunity for bad actors. To go in and use force to protect populations, uh, uh, and what they're really doing is, is using it as a subterfuge to, to to do something else. And so that's that's the risk there. And and so there've been a lot of scholarly discussions of responsibility to protect. The U.S. doesn't recognize it as a legal basis, and so it remains to be seen where we go with that in the future. So, stay tuned. Uh, from there, I go to domestic legal basis, and, and we have to have a a, a, a statute or some other basis, or if nothing else, the President's Article II constitutional authority to use force. The one we've used the most and talked about the most uh, is the authorization for the use of military force, which you've seen talked about with Al-Qaeda. You saw, again, the, the discussions regarding ISIL and the President's decision to use the 2001 AUMF and the 2002 Iraq AUMF as justifications for his use of force, uh, authorizing the use of force in Iraq and Syria. And so you hear those are the domestic bases um, that we've been used, used, used to the most. But there are others. You know, there are other statutes on the books that, that allow use of force. The, the key to finding a statute versus just using the president, and I say just, using the president's Article II authority is the War Powers Resolution. And so the War Powers Resolution, if you've, if you've followed it at all, it says that within 60 days of the introduction of U.S. forces into hostilities, you have to withdraw them if there hasn't been a congressional authorization for the use of that force. And so it's an affirmative duty on the Congress to act or the president is supposed to remove those troops. Now, the, the tricky part of that is that no president 
since it was enacted during the Nixon administration, has recognized that law as constitutional. They have all said it's unconstitutional. The Obama administration has never formally come out and said either way, but if you look at the way the Obama administration filings for war powers reports to the, uh, to the Congress are, you'll notice that when he writes a letter reporting the use of force or the introduction of troops, uh, he uses a phrase that says, I am reporting consistent with the war powers resolution. And that's what every president has done since uh, Nixon to say, not, I'm, I'm not reporting in compliance with, I'm reporting consistent with. And so, you know, he, by all indications, and we don't know because it's, there's no, never been a formal policy statement, uh, the President Obama's position on the war powers resolution is no different than the previous presidents before. So uh, having a statutory basis for the use of, a domestic uh, basis for the use of force helps us because, you know, I, I, can't, I can't take the position that a law is unconstitutional. That's not my authority. So I, I look for a statute that gets us past the war powers resolution hurdle. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's the president's decision what we decide to do. And so, you know, if you look back at those 60 days following the first airstrike in Iraq, uh, trying to save the Yazikis on that mountain, you'll look at there was, you know, we needed something in those 60 days. And, and you'll see that the AUMF decision was made within those 60 days. So domestic legal basis. The next thing I look to is policy. Because everything we do is bounded, you know, certainly by policy, presidential policy, Department of Defense policy, and so forth. So for example, I have, uh, if I'm gonna use military force, there's a possibility I may take detainees, for example. And so I have a wealth of policy on detention operations, uh, on what weapons I can use, and so forth. So there's a lot of policy I look to. And then from there, we take, we take the international domestic law, we take policy, and we translate that into an execute order, or an, we call it an exord, it's just an order from the SECDEF to the forces in the field saying, here's what you can do, here's your mission, here's your left and right limits of authority, here's your rules of engagement, and, and, and go forth and, and, and do, you know, do good things. Yes, ma'am. Um, what, what is meant by rules of engagement? What is meant by rules of engagement? Rules of engagement are, are, are how we translate international law, particularly the international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict, domestic law, and policy into literally rules that tell fort commanders and the forces underneath them what they can and cannot do in a combat setting. So for example, we have rules of engagement that talk about self-defense. Here's when you can defend yourself, here's when you're not, and if you're not authorized, then you obviously can't. You know. uh, here's when you can fire certain types of weapons. Here's certain types of weapons you cannot use. Um, here's areas you can fire into, and here's areas you can't fire into. Here's countries you can go into, here's countries you can't go into. And so there, there literally are rules about how they can engage with, with the use of military force. And it becomes quite a challenge in a coalition environment, as you can imagine, because it's shaped by international law, domestic law, and domestic policy, then when you have a NATO coalition like we do in ISAF in Afghanistan and, and shaping up in Iraq and in other places, you'll often have rule, everybody brings different rules of engagement to the table. Now, in ISAF, International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, they are now, they're called something new now since we changed the mission over, but in ISAF, the NATO forces there, we have NATO ISAF rules of engagement. And so every country that came to the 
the NATO fight there underneath NATO's authority as ISAF followed those rules of engagement. They each brought their own self-defense rules, so every nation had a little bit of a different twist on when they could defend themselves. Um, and an example of that, for, for example, some countries, you can defend yourself until the threat goes away and then you have to stop. Other countries have what we call hot pursuit, where if you're engaged, you can continue to go after that enemy until you eliminate the threat. You don't have to stop when they, get away, when they start to run away. So that's an example. And then also with a coalition, every country comes with caveats. Uh, caveats are rules that they say, here's things we will not do. You, they can never be, a country can never come in and be more permissive than the NATO ISAF rules, but they can be more restrictive. And so, for example, we had countries that came in and said, we will not do counter-narcotics because of domestic law, domestic policy, policy, whatever reason. We will not do anything related to counter-narcotics, even if there's a military nexus. You had other countries that had things based on capabilities. For example, we had a country in ISAF that said, we will not do night operations. Kind of interesting. They wouldn't do them because they didn't have the capability. They didn't have the night vision goggles. They didn't have the training. And, and so they had a caveat that said, we will not do night operations. And so as, as the commanders and the planners and the legal advisors, you've, you, if you've got a night operation against counter narcotics, you can find somebody else to do it. Can, he's got the rules that allow it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Is there a debate about whether, you know, which, for instance, if there should be classified rules of engagements or which one should be classified? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes, although, it, you know, this far into a conflict has kind of become routine, but I can remember back in 02 and 03, there was always some discussion of that. Uh, we had quite a bit of a heated discussion, frankly, on um, detention policy, in particular uh, interrogation techniques, right after Abu Ghraib when we had the new manual and the Detainee Treatment Act that uh, Senator McCain sponsored, there was quite a bit of discussion about should, should, our, should our interrogation techniques be classified or unclassified? You know, won't the enemy train on them and learn how to be, et cetera? So there's always that debate, and it really is a, it, it, you see this in a lot of areas in, in national security, there's always a, a trade-off between transparency and flexibility. You know, the, the more, if you, if you have a law that says, like the AUMF, and it's a little off topic, but forgive me, it's, it's a good time to address it. If you have a law like the AUMF that says you can go after you know, members of Al-Qaeda and associated forces, that's, that's not real transparent because what's an associated force? Unless you've defined it in the statute, then, then there's, it's not as transparent as a lot of people would like, for example. But on the other hand, there's a lot of flexibility there for a commander and, and really the president to put policy down to commanders to say, Here's, here's what I consider associated forces or, or you know, and so forth and, and define that. So you trade off between transparency and flexibility. And that same trade off is with rules of engagement and, and so forth. You, you want to you make sure your forces are clear on when they can use force and when they can't. But if, if it's over prescriptive, then you get to the point where nobody will do anything because they, they don't know what they can do and they're afraid to act. And that's a terrible place for a soldier to be. So you want to give them some flexibility. Good question. Uh, could I just have a question about in terms of like um, when you're dealing with the multinational force or you know something like what was going on in Afghanistan and is shaping up in Iraq? Are you involved in any of the legal? Is it in, is it the command that's legal advisors to the command that work with all the associates like the, all the coalition forces to determine 
how things are going to work and to settle all those agreements, or is that something that you would be involved in as well? It's it's a little of both, and it, and it, and it depends on you know there's kind of the strategic level, the operational level, and the tactical level. So certainly decisions about who, who's going to cover this village versus that one, who's, going, who's got this sector versus that one, that's very tactical and operational. That's going to be handled by the command out in the field. Uh, on the other hand, the NATO ISAF rules of engagement, when you can go kill somebody or when you can't, those are going to be handled at a very strategic policy level, you know, for NATO ISAF, the NATO, uh, NATO Council, the NATO Committee, North Atlantic Committee, the NAC, I mean, you're going to have countries that the country's leadership comes together and determines what's acceptable, and then the NATO military staff will write those rules of engagement. And so, um, you know, with input from the country. So those were done before I got to this position. I mean, those were done years ago. But I'm sure whoever sat in my chair at the time probably had some input to those. I would, I would hope, because uh, we certainly had input. And then for the country's, a nation state's own stuff, then absolutely. I mean, my shop writes rules of engagement all the time. We have standing rules of engagement that they're called the chairman's standing rules of engagement, and they're promulgated under the authority of the Secretary of Defense, but the chairman puts them out. And it's a standing document that gives kind of the basics on self-defense and some other things. And then when we come to a particular operation and we have to write specialized rules of engagement for an operation, we do those. And, and, but often we'll have, we're working very closely with, for example, Central Command, They'll write. They'll give us some. They'll give us some draft rules that they'd like to see. They're getting them from their subordinate and so forth. So all that, you know, there's a lot of talk up and down the chain. Because what you don't want to do is just, you know, go to a commander and hand him a list and say, "There's your rules. We'll, you know, let us know when it's done." Because that's just a terrible way to do business. And and they're gonna, it's not gonna work. So there's a lot of crosstalk and a lot of coordination that happens in operational channels, in legal channels, and so forth to make sure that you get the best product to, to give the commander what he or she needs to succeed, but still follow international law, domestic law, and policy, and what the president has allowed you to do. And so, let me see, about, I, I've got a great example, but it's classified, so let me see. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk around it a little bit. So recently, we had some guidance on what we could do in a particular area, and there was a question about, in a, about this, you know, this subpart. Do we have the authority to do this or not? And honestly, we, 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 didn't, we weren't sure what, what authority we had gotten, so we had to go back up to the White House and say, can you find out whether we have this authority or not? And, and of course, that goes through the SECDEF, up the, you know, through the National Security Advisor and so forth. And then we got the answer back, you don't have the authority to do this. And so we, but we had to ask because it was unclear. And, and different people remembered it differently, which is um, uh, you know, just because of, of I, anyway, I can't get into it. But, um, it's a great story, though. Um, sorry about that. But it, it, it is. There are times you have to go back up and, and get a floor. Uh, yes, ma'am. This is a question a little bit off of what we're talking about right now. <clears throat> is there um, a group of lawyers that advise the Secretary of Defense that are not part of the JAG? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, the, the, in fact, none of them are. The Secretary of Defense is advised by the General Counsel, um, who's currently Mr. Stephen Preston. He's a civilian, he's a presidentially appointed, Senate-confirmed government official, so he's what they call a PAS. Um, and so that's a political appointee. And his staff are almost exclusively, I mean, they're civilian hires for the Department of Defense. They're civilian employees. Many of them are retired JAGs, but not all of them are. 
And then he's got, um, there are some military JAGs who as a two or three year assignment are working in the Office of General Counsel. Uh, but most of them are not JAG. I mean, most of them are civilian employees. And, well, I was just going to say, and that's fine. I mean, that's the way, it's, that's civilian control of the military. But you know what, those folks are constantly talking to my folks and the COCOM, the combatant command staff judge advocate shops where there are JAGs. And we're always talking up and down. I mean, we're, we're just, it, we get a better perspective, a better product that way. Do you have sort of concurrent, you look at the same issues? Or? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because what will happen, um, you know, uh, CENTCOM will propose an operation to do something in, in Iraq. And they'll say, we'd like to do this operation, we'd like to use these forces, we want these rules of engagement, and so forth. So we, we've now got to, they, and they may have done a legal analysis, may not have. But usually they have. I mean, they're really good about that. And so we'll take a look at it, we'll see if there are any legal issues, we'll advise the chairman, the joint staff, we'll work in, I mean, I've got, my guys are, uh, guys and girls are, are down working with the operators to write the plans, to draft the rules, to work very closely, and then we'll have that product, and then it goes upstairs to the, the what we call the third deck, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and the General Counsel's Office will look at it. But at the same time, my folks have been talking upstairs, too. So the action officers, and I call them officers, but the, you know, the attorneys in the General Counsel's Office who work the same issues, they've been talking to my attorneys, they've been talking to the CENTCOM attorneys. We've carefully coordinated so we try to come to an agreement on what things ought to be. So that when Mr. Preston, the general counsel, the secretary's lawyer, when he gets it, we ought to all be on the same sheet. And, and last question, when cases where you may not agree, then what happens? They win. I mean, he, he's, the, he's the general counsel for the department. So if he, and, and that was what I was talking about earlier, that idea of that we ought to not get to that point. Right. If, if, we're, if we're, now, that doesn't mean I cave in, because there have been times when I've disagreed uh, on issues, and, and I just, and maybe, and, and we let them know that, and, and, and they'll often take that into account and change their opinions, or they'll, um, they'll just communicate it across to the White House that, you know, here's the OGC legal opinion, by the way, joint staff thinks it's this, or chairman's legal, or, you know, thinks it's slightly different, and they'll communicate that as well, because then at least the decision makers at the, at, at the, on the National Security Council staff, now they get that added perspective. You know, because it, it's hard to get black and white in this area. Just a question, sir, which is, so uh, when I worked with companies or had clients as a lawyer, when I went down to lawyers involved, always slowing down the decision making. Yeah. You're in a unique position, it seems, right? I guess I mean, so. Is there pushback when you have to go back and say, uh, to clarify this yes. issue for us? How do you negotiate That's a great question. Um, part, of what I, uh, part of what I tell operational lawyers, uh, and, and something I've done, is I tell people, don't be a dentist. Um, I love dentists. Dentists are great. We gotta have dentists. But think about how a dentist's business model works. You know, you, you got a problem with your teeth, you go see the dentist, the dentist fixes it, you go away, you don't have any kind of relationship at all. You just go back every six months and get them clean. That works great for a dentist. I don't want a dentist hanging around my house watching me floss. I don't want him <laughs> trying to you know, see if I eat too much sugar in the buffet. I don't want that. But you know what? That model works really well for an operational lawyer and for an in-house counsel and a lot of other settings. I want, I, I tell, my folks ought to be there at the meetings early on. They ought to be where they need to be so that they can hear the issues as they come up and help with the planning because there's nothing worse than getting to the end of the planning and then all of a sudden it's like the lawyer steps in and says, oh, that's illegal. You know, when you could have fixed it two months ago and gotten them on the right path. I tell, I tell commanders and clients and my folks do, 
you know, you want to get from point A to point B, don't tell me how to get there. Let me tell you how to get there. You know, you don't care the path necessarily. What you really care about is just getting to point B. Let me tell you how to get there legally, morally, and ethically. I'll get you there. If I absolutely can't get you there, I'll tell you that. But know that, that you know, I'm going to get you there most of the time. And the other thing I do uh, that I think is important, and, and others do, I mean, it's not unique to me, is, is, you know, we've got to explain to our clients the risks involved, legal risks uh, involved. It's, there's no simple yes or no answers in these areas. And so you have a lot of attorneys who immediately, they're like, yes, 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 oh, I'm sure we can, and they're dangerous. And then you have other lawyers who say no, 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 all the time, and they're equally dangerous because you don't get the mission done. But right in the middle is somebody who figures out a way to do it, again, legally, morally, and ethically, and then explains to the client, hey, look, here are the risks. The risk is that an attorney above me may disagree because this is a pretty novel legal theory. Uh, a risk is that, that you know, this may be the international community may completely disagree with our legal reading and we're going to hear about it. Uh, the risk is et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you lay out that legal risk. I mean, I've had, I've had commanders say, just give me a yes or no answer, judge. And I'm like, you know what, sir, there is no yes. It's not that simple. You need to know what the risks are. You need to make a decision. Let me tell you what the law, what I think the law says. But here, and let me tell you how strong I think it is, because in some cases it's not, you know. And that's what I usually, and, and that seems to be an approach that's worked pretty well. But if you're involved the whole time, you can stop the, you know, the, the, a lot of the craziness. I had one case where um, an, an incident happened years and years ago uh, where everybody, a couple guys said, hey, we want to stay behind after the morning meeting and tell the deputy commanding general this great idea we have. It would really do amazing things. And so I hung around, because I always hang around when I hear that. <laughs> and, and they, so there's a crowd of about 30 people, and I'm kind of in the back, and they, they say, hey, sure, we got this great idea, bang, bang, bang. And everybody's like, oh, that's a great idea. And I, I raise my hand. And judge, what you got? I said, sir, I'm pretty sure that violates the Chemical Weapons Convention. <laughs> and every head swiveled towards me. Like I, you know, like I, it was so awkward, and it's one of those moments. And I said, mister, I'm, I'm pretty sure that violates the Chemical Weapons Convention. And they were just like, you could just see them. But this, this bunch had done this to me before, where they don't come see the lawyers, they just write ideas, or the good idea fair, as we call them, uh, where they've just got these great ideas, and they, but they don't run by a lawyer. And so I said, sir, if you don't mind, let me, let me take a look at it. I won't take more today. And let me just see if we're okay here. Because they had moved down, I mean, they were, they were moving down that road. And I checked, and sure enough, absolutely violated our, our international treaty obligations. And I, and I told them that, and they shut it down. And you know what? I had a very grateful client. I had a couple pissed off action officers, and I didn't care because my job is to protect the command and the commander, and and, and protect those guys too because they, you know, they were they just just they should have asked. And so that taught me that you know to try to be as many places as I can, and be at the meetings where and and to, and to figure out ways to when you're not at meetings to get them to do that. So for example, we had a. We had a, a system whereby you would get every action that moved through a command had to have a certain people could coordinate. And when you were setting up an action for coordination, you got to pick who coordinated on it. You know, you got to pick personnel officer. Do I let the money guy, the comptroller look at it? Do I let the lawyer look at it? Do I let the operations officer look at it? You got to pick the boxes. You would check or uncheck who got to coordinate on that package. And I went to the knowledge management guy, who was a buddy of mine, and I said, hey, hey, Bob, I think my opinion is that you should not be able to uncheck the JAG box. And I think you should not be able to uncheck the comptroller money box. I said, I, 
I can look at something in about 30 seconds and decide if there's a legal issue. And if there's not, I'll, I'll pass on it and it'll go. But if there is, I'll need some time with it, but then those are the ones you want me to have time with. And he agreed completely. He went to the chief of staff. Chief of staff agreed. And they changed the system. So a week after it came out, you could no longer uncheck the jackbox, which infuriated people. Uh, but you know what? It's not, I don't want an intel officer or an operations officer or a special forces guy figuring out whether or not there's a, a legal issue. I want a lawyer figuring that out. Uh, and that worked great. And so there are ways you can infiltrate the system and make sure that you're, you know, you're getting to see things you ought to see. Yes, ma'am. Sometimes when you're I mean, part of it, I, I think, is relationships. I mean, part of it is if the first time somebody's seeing you, and I'm not saying this is the case, but, I, but I've had this happen. The first time they're seeing you, you're bringing bad news, then that's probably, the, that's not the best place. I mean, sometimes that happens. Uh, but ideally, you know, you, you work well as part of the team and they've seen you and, and so forth, and then when that first action comes, then, then you're ready and they say, okay, well, she's been very helpful to us. We know her, we trust her, she's got the credibility, so we're, we, we need to listen to her own. And, and that really, to me, relationships at the end of the day are really what it's about. You've earned, you've earned that client's trust, you've got that good relationship. They don't always like you, uh, <laughs> or like what you're saying, but, but that there's respect there. And then I found that every place I've ever been, there's usually a crisis within the first couple months you're there. I mean, that's just the world we live in. There's some kind of crisis that they need a lawyer's help. And when that happens, I tell operational jags, I said, you ought to jump on that. You ought to be, you ought to, that ought to be your number one priority is fix that crisis. Because they're going to remember that, that you were, you were the person that stepped in and fixed it. And, and I've had that happen everywhere I've been. There's been some, something that I just, and I, I, I look for it, and as soon as it hits, I take it and I fix it. And they're like, oh, yeah, girls fix that. You know, and, and it happens every time. And so I look for that crisis. But yeah, it's tough. And, it, and at the end of the day, sometimes we're just, we're just the turd in the punch bowl. We're the, we're the person that nobody wants at the party. And that's our life as a judge. I mean, that's our life as legal advisors. It's just, yeah. Can I say turd in the punch bowl? <laughs> we have the end of the term of the current uh, chairman, John uh, Dempsey, and incoming John Dunford. Will your role change? Are those, are, will, will you be moving to another job? Does that, does the JCS chief usually get to Choose his own legal counsel? Great question. This is where I would hand out resumes normally, but uh, <laughs> I didn't bring any with me. Um, until 2008, the, the, the assignment of the legal counsel to the chairman was, a, was an 06 or a, 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 a Navy captain or Air Force Marine or Army colonel level position, and it was a nominative assignment, which meant all the services would nominate somebody and there was a, somebody picked who they wanted. And I don't know, to be honest with you, in the past, whether the chairman always chose who he wanted or whether, you know, the director of the joint staff did or whether, you know, the TJAGs took turns, hey, it's the Air Force's turn or whatever. I do know that I'm the first Army person in the job since 1995. So whatever we were doing, we weren't doing very well. Um, but in 2008, it changed. And what changed was that, and I think, I think Senator Graham is the one to thank for this, but the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, created this job as a one-star billet and required, it actually created it in law, I have my own statute, 
10 USC 156. And um, it created the billet, and it, cre- it requires a board. So there has to be a board that meets, that nominates someone to be the joint st- the chairman's legal counsel. And then that goes to the secretary, which goes to the president. He nominates, the Senate confirms, and then you're appointed as the both a one-star. You get the rank and the billet together. And I'm only the second person in the job since, you know, since 2008. The previous gentleman, uh, Admiral Jim Crawford, who's now the Navy, will be the Navy's Judge Advocate General here in about a month, or sometime this month, uh, three-star. So uh, that's, that's what's changed. Now, there's nothing in the law that says how long you stay or how short you stay. So I could have conceivably, I think, you know, had I asked, I could have conceivably stayed. I, the previous person stayed till Admiral Mullen left, about three weeks short, but you know, Admiral Crawford stayed with Admiral Mullen the whole time. I've been with General Dempsey the whole time. My personal thought is that's a good time for me to step aside. And so we, we set up with uh, the folks uh, up in the Office of Secretary of Defense, we set up the board to meet, and the board met in March and then selected somebody. And then now they've got to be confirmed and everybody, you know, confirmed by the Senate, nominated by the President. I think that's happened, confirmed by the Senate. And then they'll, they'll take over on 1 October when the new chairman takes the chair, that the new legal counsel will take the chair. Is he a Marine? He's not a Marine. <laughs> the, interestingly enough, the chairman's job is the only military job I'm aware of that has a statutory term of office. The, oh, that's okay. It's free. It's free. Man. Um, the chairman's the only job that it runs from October 1st to October 1st of the odd numbered years. It's the only job like it in, in statute. And so I, I've known for four years when I'm planning to leave, you know, 1 October 2015, which is good, been good for closure. But it's been a great, it's been an amazing, absolutely amazing job. I hate to leave it, but it's just the right, it's the right time. So, uh, good. Thank you for that question. No, we do. We got time for about one or two more. Yes, sir. Hey, sir. We were talking the other day um, regarding uh, Syria and uh, Syrian forces. So, your advice when uh, did this question come up regarding uh, modern Syrian forces fighting ISIL? And while we're supplying them, and they decide to uh, fight Syrian government, what's our uh, responsibility or a violation of two four? Or does that come up? Did that come up in questions? That's come up a lot, <laughs> an awful lot. So there's a lot of tough. There's a lot of tough issues involved there. Uh, it's still pre-decisional, um, but you know look, there's a number of legal issues here. Let's let's talk. Let's just spot the issues and. I'll let y'all debate the answers, uh, and there's not only law but policy. So, the f- the first piece of law is can you can you go into Syria and and use lethal force against a terrorist organization? Obviously, we're doing that. So, and you've seen the president's statements. We we go down that chart. So, our international legal basis: self-defense, ongoing conflict with Al Qaeda, also the consent of Iraq on the Iraq side. And self de- collective self-defense of Iraq on both sides. So you have that international legal basis, domestic legal basis. The president looked to both the 2001 AUMF and the 2002, and transmitted a draft ISIL AUMF to the Congress, which hasn't gone anywhere. I mean, we've had a number of briefings and hearings on it, uh, but it, it it just hasn't gone anywhere. And there's a lot of debate that's in the public, you know, in the public sphere about. Interestingly enough, you know, it, it seems to be that. President's party wants to restrict it even more, and the, the Republicans want to give him more authority, which is unusual. But I mean, that's and that's all a civil 
So that's all a civil debate. That's civilians. Uh, that's between the president and the Congress. You know, that military work just tells what to do. You know, tells what authority we have and what, he's, what you want us to do. So there's there's that initial decisions about use of force and, and then and you can look up. You can actually, if you're interested in this particular area and you want some details, if you'll Google, you can find Samantha Power's letter to the UN uh, on our use of, of collective self-defense for the Iraqs, Iraqis, and that you know that lays out our legal our legal our understanding of our legal authority to do it. And so you also have Iraq's letter to the UN Security Council. So both of those are two documents I would point to, as well as the War Powers, multiple War Powers reports, or consistent with War Powers reports that the President transmitted to Congress. So that, that lays out that. Now, you have the next legal issue, and that's about the best answer you'll get out of me. So that's, that's the most detail you'll get out of me for an answer. So the rest of them are legal issues. Issue one, can you train a, a force and put them inside another country uh, to go after a terrorist threat to yourself. Obviously, we have congressional authorization to do it. You've seen the president's statements. We're moving that direction. Uh, and then the next issue is that, that came up around that two years ago more so, but certainly is the idea of can you train a, a force, put them in another country to go after that country. And that's, that's, a, that's a hard problem, frankly. Uh, that's a very hard problem. Then uh, you have the legal issues about once you've trained up a force and put them in another country, can you use lethal force to protect them? And can you use lethal force to protect them against the same threat that you're, you're, that you're fighting against in self-defense? So could you, could you defend them against ISIL? Could you defend them against members of the regime? Could you defend them against random, you know, violent crowds? And so you got to work through all that. Legally, can you go into another country without that country's consent and defend non, you know, non-state actors um, and so forth? So all that's very, very difficult legal problems. Uh, and then there's also the policy issue, though. I mean, it's not just can you, but should you? And, I, and whenever I talk about the difference between law and policy, I usually can you and should you? Can you defend these forces? And then, the, assuming you can, should you? And should you is the policy. And if so, when? When do you go in and defend them? You know, and, and is it all the time? Is it and, and is it just against ISIL forces? Is it you know, and so forth. So you got to work through all the policy issues as well. And those are all very, very complicated. And, and I would say, stay tuned. Does the U.S. have a position on whether the Assad regime has given tacit consent for us to be there? I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I don't. I, if they have a position, I don't know that it's been made public. Sorry to put you on the spot, but I know that with the previous class there was a discussion here about uh, cyber and whether or not it would constitute use of force. Could you talk about the UD cyber policy at all, or if there's been? Well, we, I mean, there's, I mean, we have a presidential policy that's classified, and then, and, but just in general, I mean, we're really struggling with that, frankly, right now. I mean, if, if you follow cyber at all, you know, there's the Talon manual, and the Talon manual requires some kind of physical damage, and so there was a lot of debate: was the attack on Sony, was that a use of force? Um, and if it was a use of force, was it a use of force against the nation state or a corporation? You know, and how do you figure that out? So, uh, and these are not easy problems, and they're not easy problems because a lot of policy tends to creep into these discussions. You know, it's not, it's never a purely legal discussion, uh, and, and there's not very, very well developed law in the first place. You know, frankly, um, whomever did that to Sony, and I mean, most open sources say it was North Korea. Whoever did that, Sony probably did the world 
in one sense a favor in, in an odd way. I mean, it, 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 there wasn't a lot of damage. There certainly wasn't a loss of life. Certainly some, some employees were hurt, some records were lost, and hurt not physically, but you know, um, and some embarrassing emails leaking out about some movies and stuff. But, but I mean, you talk about the low end of the damage scale. I mean, differentiate that from taking out Wall Street or shutting down the Eastern Seaboard power grid. So they may have done us a favor because they re-energized that debate about cybersecurity uh, for private firms and so forth and what people do. And frankly, probably have a lot of CEOs in the business world waking up and saying, uh, what do our systems have in place and what do we need to do? And I'm sure that a lot of cybersecurity firms make a lot of money right now uh, because of all this. But it, it, it's fostered a good debate. Uh, the Talent 2 group is meeting right now, I guess, and, and it'll be interesting to see how they're informed by what's going on. But it's just you can't get folks to agree about what's a use of force, What's an what's an armed attack, and, and what's what does the law allow us to do in response? You know, and, and they're not easy questions. You know, so it's tough. Can yes, I just ask the follow up on that? Sure. I asked the question earlier in terms of like is is the struggle about the is it an armed attack or not or armed aggression, or is it also or is it the issue of proportionality or is it both or all three or and necessity and. I, I don't think it ever. I don't think we get past the first part. You know what I mean? Because once we get to proportionality, necessity, and, and so forth, and, you know, and distinction, and all those other issues, and we can figure that out if you tell us it's an armed attack or not. Um, I mean, it won't be easy, but, it, but it's possible. Um, but really, the hard part is, can, is this something that rises to the level of an, of an armed attack that we can now use military force against? That's issue one. The other hard issue is, you know, it's, it's not like... You know, a, a missile fired from country A, and I'm going to drop a bomb back on country A. Uh, a. A electronic packet left country A, went through seven other countries, all of which are neutral, none of which know that packet was there, and now it landed in my country and did damage. So can I send something back through those seven countries or not? And that's hard. That's a tough question because of neutrality. And our concepts of neutrality and, and so forth are so... Um, I mean, they're all based on the physical world of World War II, and, and it doesn't work real well in cyber. And then, and then it gets a little harder because cyber is just different. You know, um, if, if somebody launched a missile and took out Wall Street, we'd launch a missile back. We wouldn't think twice about it. If somebody launched an electronic packet and took out Wall Street, there's a real hesitancy to launch a missile back. But, but why? And so and, and that's a policy question. It's not a legal question. Well, there is a legal question. Could I use force, mil true military force, not electronic force, but you know, physically damaging bombing force against an electronic attack? There's the legal question, but there's the harder, I think, a harder policy question. Because you're going to blow up a, a server in a in an office building. I mean, you're never going to find that, like in the movies, where there's that that evil military computer in an evil military base in an evil military country. And you just go blow it up. I mean, it's never going to be like that. It's going to be in a nice office building with a Starbucks in the in the first floor, and you know, people in coat and tie coming to work who don't know what's going on. You know, and there's a server in there sending crap all over the world, and so it's just never going to be that simple. And that makes it hard too. Can I ask one final? Absolutely. Is part of the issue also the attribution aspect? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and all those come into play, and because uh, um, it is hard sometimes to tell who does what. Yeah, it's very hard. Mm -hmm.